So we are continuing in our sermon series, The Marvels of Biblical Joy. And I think we've got two more weeks after this. And then um, you can be praying for the elders and deacons. We're actually going to be meeting this Saturday morning, bright and early. Um, and we're going to meet from like 6.30 to 8.30 to discuss a book that's on the doctrine of the Trinity and some of the things that are happening in our modern contemporary era about doctrine. And we want to rightly divide the word of truth and understand the rich things of God's uh, word and how he's revealed himself to us. And it, based on that, we are, are leaning towards the next sermon series, which will likely be coming in to look at foundations, doctrinal foundations of our faith, which is going to be really, really important because I don't think that, um, well, well, actually, I think that we're living in uh, that era, an era right now, where those things are very, uh, like, in, much in flux. And we don't want to be in flux. We want to be grounded because being grounded gives us assurance about how we're to move forward. And so I feel like even though we, are, we try to be a very doctrinally sound church, there's times that we, we don't go to the foundational aspects. And so part of what the Lord's been doing in my own life, and I think what as these guys have been uh, reading through some of this material that I've been sharing, the, the conversations just that have been kind of fibrous and, and natural, organic in our lives are leaning into that. But we're going to try to sew that up and, so that we can know exactly what the Lord wants to do with us. So um, just be praying for us in that. So this morning, moving into the marvels of biblical joy, one of the, and I, I've been like, when I went through and listed the, the passages that address this, this was one that I was like, I can't wait to teach this. Even though it's really simple, I think in some ways, it should be like one of the highest pinnacle points because we're going to look at the joy of Jesus. And, and I don't know how much you think about the joy of Jesus and, and how that relates to us, but I think it's something that we really need to, to grasp a, a hold of this truth and it needs to, to be amplified, not only in our contemplation, but in how we flesh out our faith. And so Mason even mentioned that when he talked this morning about mortifying the deeds of our flesh, or mortifying, putting those things, the, the, the sin of our lives to death. We're going we're gonna to hit that in just a moment. We're going to be in Hebrews 12. So I invite you to turn to Hebrews 12. We're going to be in, in just in the first two verses. Um, and this may be a passage that you, you are very familiar with in a lot of ways because Paul talks about this cloud of witnesses, and I'm going to break that down in just a second. But most of the sermons or most of the teaching that I've heard around this passage actually focus in on what it means to, to focus in on the, the cloud of witness about this great cloud. And since we've been hindered by every kind of weight of sin, we're supposed to cast those things off. But I've not really heard anyone focus in on specifics regarding the joy of Jesus in, in relationship with this. And that passage is so so clear to me that that's actually the basis for, for how this cloud of witnesses works, and, and it gives us the surety of, of how we move forward. Now, I would just remind you of this in context. What is Hebrews chapter 11 dealing with? Does anybody remember? Y'all can talk back now. Not, not like rude and ugly in a way, but just, yeah, just say again really. Yeah, faith. Some of you said, it's known as what? The faith chapter, right? Or the hall of faith. Because the writer of Hebrews, we don't know who exactly who it is, but he, he goes through all of these people throughout the Old Testament uh, who have uh, responded to the gospel looking ahead by faith to the coming of Jesus and the cross that was uh, going, going to be uh, endured by him. And so their faith was one that was looking forward where we have a faith that does what? 
looks back at the cross of Christ. And so, it's interesting that he sets this context in Hebrews 12 up talking about this great cloud of witnesses by looking uh, through the, the lens of Hebrews 11 and all those of faith. And I don't think that list is by any means exhaustive. These are just like the cream of the crop that we have testimony of in, in the Scriptures that we can easily go and recognize their, uh, th- their testimony in their, their lives. So, let's read Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 to- together, and then we're going to break this down. Therefore, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, my mind is just like worrying right now. And Lord, I, I would imagine that for every one of us in here, there's probably some level or degree that, that there's a lot of busy thoughts in our heads as well. Lord, I pray that for every one of us that we would, one, stop and listen really carefully to your word and meditate on what we just read. Two, that we would be sensitive to your spirit and his leading. Three, that as we're sensitive, we would both contemplate the truth of the word, how you have revealed it so specifically to us. But then also, as we contemplate, Lord, that, that your spirit would make it come alive to us because it is uh, the word of God is alive and active. It divides the bone and the marrow. It doesn't leave anything in us unturned. And we need that. We need to be confronted about our sin. We need to be encouraged about the hope of the gospel. Lord, for someone in here today, they may need to be convicted about their need for Jesus Christ as their Savior. The beauty is, Lord, your spirit is at work, and he knows all of our needs specifically. And we can trust that you will meet us exactly where we are. So, Father, I pray that in the next few minutes you give me clarity of thought and speech that your spirit would have his way in us, and that we would leave here today more convinced of your love, more convinced of your grace, more convinced of our responsibility to uh, enact our, uh, or act upon our faith so that you are glorified. Lord, we look forward to how you're going to work now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me give you a couple of things about this passage that I think are very interesting to, to start with. If you notice, when we come to Scripture, I was, I was telling the youth on Wednesday night, I had the opportunity to teach them out of the book of Philippians, and one of the things that we always need to remember is this principle about uh, studying the Bible, that context is king, okay, that, that it would rule how we interpret things, that we not just extract a verse and go, what does it mean? That's why I set that up a little bit. The other thing that we need to know about healthy Bible study is that we understand the types of, uh, I can use a big word here, it's a short word, but it's it maybe, hopefully it makes sense, genre, the type of literature that it is, okay? Uh, and sometimes when we read uh, certain types of literature, uh, we need to understand it so we interpret it appropriately. And so this is one of those places where the, the genre of the literature or the type of devices, literary devices that the writer is using are very important because what he is using right here is this idea of metaphor. And so he, he talks in some metaphorical language about 
a cloud of what? Witnesses. Now, it's not a literal cloud, even though I think in some ways it could be a literal cloud, because there's actually some, um, I guess, amplitude or room for interpretation that this cloud consists of just those who have gone before us in the faith. That would be contextually certainly true based on the, the teaching of Hebrews 11. But I think there's also a literal aspect to this cloud that it's those who are witnesses right now with us of what God is doing in our lives and, and it's a matter of our faith. So, so it's, it's, but it's not this you know, physical, literal cloud. I know that makes sense, right? But, but we need to remember that. It's also in this sense. Um, he's not talking about literal weights of sin. It's not like when we sin, we have these literal things that cling to us. But I can guarantee you, when we sin, what does it do to our hearts? What does it do to our attitudes? What does it do to our uh, perspective about things? It weighs us down. It clouds our reason. It clouds our judgment. It clouds our sense of hope. And I love this proverb. It says, where hope is deferred, the heart becomes sick. And when we don't walk according to God's plan, and sin gets, uh, we get encompassed by sin, and it weighs us down, our hearts do become sick. And that's why we need to become disentangled from our sin. We, the other metaphor that the writer here uh, employs here is the idea of the race. And I don't think that any of us feel like we're standing at the starting line waiting for the, the pistol to sound. But the, there's also a sense that we are in the race and we need to go on. And so as we remember those metaphors, you say, well, what, what's the point of all that, that kind of stuff? Well, I think sometimes we need metaphors to help us understand the truth because it puts us in a mindset and in a, a, a position of understanding some things in more tangible, real ways that we can relate to. And, and so this point I believe that the writer of Hebrews is getting us to is to say, this is reality for you. If you understand these things, it'll help you as you walk out in your faith so that, so that you're encouraged ultimately by what God is doing in your life and all things. So, so let's look at this. I think that ultimately these, the, the idea is that we gain encouragement. So when we think about this cloud of witnesses, this great cloud of witnesses, what is their point? What is, what is the, the, the concept that they are taking on with themselves? Um, it, it is this idea that a witness does, I think, primarily two things. First, they tell their perspective about events that have occurred, right? You can think about somebody experiencing a, watching a car accident. From their vantage point, they're going to tell you something that happened. If they're standing on one side of the street, it's going to look a little different than if somebody was standing on the other side of the street. But the more... Uh, uh, we gather the witness's testimony, what can we do? We can frame a, an understanding, a deeper understanding of what happened in the accident. So those perspectives build that testimony, and that's the other part of the, the, the witnesses. We understand that not just one witness provides all the resource that we need, but multiple testimonies give us a great perspective on the truth. So when we think about the, the work that this great cloud of witnesses is doing for us, they're establishing a, a uh, well-understood perspective about the hope of the gospel, and then with the multiple voices, we gain a greater understanding of the truth, and we gain more confidence in it. Now, with that in mind, I want you to think about the picture of running a race. Some of you guys know Jen Wheat. I thought it was really cool to see uh, Knox, not Knox, it was Max and, um, oh gosh, Reese, right? Um, 
in a cross-country meet this week. She posted pictures of them, and it just reminded me, and I was, I was kind of watching, and, you know, Jen, obviously, is a mom standing there on the sideline taking the pictures of the boys running uh, their course. So when you think about the witnesses on a race, what are they doing the entire time that those runners or cyclists or whomever is going by? They're, they're cheering, aren't they? they? They may be in a long marathon. What else might they be doing? Handing them like a water bottle or some kind of protein or what, what are they called? The, the Shay's just run some marathons. I need her in here. They're, they're like the little, they're not protein bars, but they have those little squeeze things. The, the, yes, a gel shot to give them an energy boost or give them the carbs that they need in the middle of the race. I don't understand it all. You can look at me and tell I'm not a marathon runner. Um, why do I get into holes? Um, so, because it makes y'all laugh, I hope. Um, so, but point being, the, the witnesses do what? They, they tell them how, you know, they might even say, how, here's how far you have to go. Keep going, keep going. It's about the encouragement. And for these witnesses especially, they've been the, the ones that have run the race and they finished. They, they know what it is like to cross the finish line. For the Lord to look at them and say, well done, good and faithful servant. And, and we need those kind of people, those witnesses around us, both those that we can look at historically that have gone before us, as well as one another in the race. Because it could just be just as important for someone that's running beside me to go, come on, we got this, we're going to go together. And so that cloud of witnesses helps to encourage us in the race. So I was reading this, and I'm, I'm um, reading some comments by John Owen. I'm gonna, I, I kind of edited this because he's a, a Puritan from the, if I remember right, the 1700s. Um, so his, his language is a little archaic and hard to read. So I modified this. So I want to just read it. So when we get to the point that, and, and I want to, as I read this, let me tell you why I'm reading this. I think he put this in a good way in what we struggle in. From a pastoral perspective, he really like captured the heart of why we're in the race and why we struggle and what we need in the midst of the race, okay? So he says, for when we get to the point that we contest things in our own minds, have you ever been there? Where, where things of the world weigh you down and there's a contest of, of conflicting ideas, especially where your faith is being challenged. Maybe somebody's uh, said something to you and, and question your faith. Maybe it's just circumstances are so overwhelming that you feel like, I don't know what to do. Maybe I, maybe I missed the, the, the real understanding of what Christianity is all about. But all, all of it, you know, it's just inside your head. Do, do y'all get there? I, I get there. And, and I've had to wrestle through some of those things. And I, I don't want to contest things in my mind. Okay? He goes on. We dispute what is best for us to do. When danger and trouble approach, maybe even death itself, wherein, I like this, wherein Satan increases our fears and disorders, like he, he by his fiery darts, he disorders things. Like if you imagine somebody starts throwing fiery darts at you, what are you going to do? You're not going to sit on the stool, you're going to get up and you're going to, I'm dodging the darts, right? I'm wary where they are. And if you have the spiritual armor on, you're going to just kind of go, I got it, I'm going to move the shield. But, but I think that's where times we get so like, forgetful of what we're operating or how we're to operate in spiritual warfare with the full armor that we end up dodging. That's what Satan wants us to do. And so he, he's attacking. And we don't need to be discouraged or get 
thrown off by those fiery darts and disordered. Owen continues, it is the witnesses that exhort, encourage, provide direction, and witness to the course that we are to claim. You get that? Hey, hey man, don't get off course. Hey, man, God is faithful. Danny's left. I, don't, I guess he's going out for security or something this morning, but oh, there he is back there. Danny, it was, it was saying what you said about the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign. He's always ruling. He has the best interest for you. And, and we're going to look at this in a minute, but he's always working together all things together for good, right? So, so we ought not be discouraged. We, we ought to go, he's got the course set. He's framing us rightly in this, and we can trust him. Owen continues, I love this. These witnesses are not few either. That's good. Because you don't just need one witness, and it's, only, it's not only one person that you depend. You have a plethora, a multitude around you. And I want you to go back to the metaphor for a moment. A cloud is formed by what? Thousands of droplets of water. Thousands upon hundreds of thousands of witnesses support us, encourage us in the journey. So, it is a great cloud that surrounds us. And what, what is so important about its greatness? We are never without it. Boy, that is a good truth, isn't it? We are never without the cloud. Now, with that in mind, so we have this cloud surrounding us. What are we then to, to do, okay? If let's look back at the text. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us do this. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which, so, uh, which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So we have what I would say is a duty. <coughs> we have a responsibility to look at the Word of God, to say this is the, the encouragement we're having is to run the race and finish well. And that race is run best when we lay aside every weight that hinders us. So what does that mean? Folks, it means this, that we are not content to, to live with sin having a place in our lives. John Owen, I, I would point you to, to his book on the mortification of sin. It's a, it's a great, great work. It's a hard read, um, but it is worth the read. Um, he talks about at length, and it's biblically based, okay, that we put to death, that's the idea of mortification, that we mortify our flesh, the things of our, our flesh or sin nature that, that so easily entangle us. Because when they entangle us or cling to us, we, we run sluggishly. We need to look at those things and say, God's desire is for us to no longer live with those things attached to us. So we must put those to death. It becomes a discipline to say, I do not want those things to be part of my life. I'm going to shape my life differently. And certainly the Lord is working in us. But this is where we res respond in a responsible, cooperative way to His work of sanctification in us. If we don't cooperate, then we get burdened with our sin. So how do we do this? How, how do we put to death sin? How do we run the race? And I love this perspective because I think it's so easy, but I think it's also very lost on us in our modern era. And look at what the writer says in this in verse 2. He says, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. 
Folks, not only is Jesus the author, founder, and perfecter, we, we, we probably, most of us know that here, and not just in the, the mental ascent aspect of knowing, we know it through a faith relationship with Him. But here's the interesting question to me about this. Are we consistently looking to Jesus? Because when we consistently look to Jesus, what happens with everything else in our lives? It ought to go, fall into the, the periphery. Jesus being the focus means that the struggles, the turmoils, the difficulties in life, even the fiery darts of the enemy, they become blurry. And, and if you want a really good illustration of this after the sermon, you can carefully come, like, look through my glasses if your vision's bad, right? You can probably imagine if you've ever looked through somebody's glasses or if you have glasses of your own. If you take, like, put the glass on, everything outside of my vision is blurry, right? But everything in my vision is clear. Does that make sense? And so it, it's that I want the clarity to be right here. Now, if, if it's outside of that, I'm not so worried about it. But for me, now this is like a learning curve as I took, because I, I, wore, I wore contacts forever. Um, but my glasses actually, because I'm, I'm an older man and there's like actually three levels in my, I have like trifocals are just blended so you don't see the lines. So as I look out into the width of my lens, it actually gets blurry. So if I'm looking at like Sherilyn and Judd over here on this side of the room or Braden and Dusty over here on this side of the room without moving my head, even though I'm looking through the lens, they're distorted. But as soon as I turn my head, there's clarity, okay? Now, now, what's the point? By looking to Jesus in whatever situation, it means that we turn and say, where's Jesus in the midst of this? Where's Jesus in the midst of this? Not looking at the circumstances alone, but saying, where is Jesus? This is what just wowed me again. You can tell I got into Owen this week and just reading some of this, but he said this. Looking at Jesus is an act that encompasses our entire soul in faith and trust. Boom. <laughs> I was like, I got to stop. That, that just like, I need to think about that for just a moment. Looking to Jesus encompasses my entire soul in faith and trust. That's not how I act all the time. That's not how I think all the time. That's not how I live out my faith all the time. And man, that's shameful. It's reality. It's the reality for you, so don't judge me. <laughs> it's for all of us. We struggle. But how much more would we enjoy our faith and be strengthened in our faith and encouraged in our faith if we walked and looked at Jesus with that at the forefront of every action, thought, situation, circumstance that Jesus would be the one who encompasses our entire soul in faith and trust. Whew. We'd be different. We'd be different. Guess what else would be different? The world would be different because they would not be able to deny the power of Christ at work in us. And they would be going, what, what is so different about you? How do you respond and react to these kind of things that ought to be so overwhelming and discouraging? Well, let me tell you, I just look at Jesus I look to Jesus because he's the author and perfecter of my faith. And he's not only started this in me, but he's going to fi finish this. Remember Philippians 1.6, students, we talked about this Wednesday night. 
Remember? Philippians 1.6. Here it is. And I'm sure of this. Now listen to that statement. I'm sure of this. There's no doubt. There's no uh, need for me to, to distrust or be paused. I am sure of this. For I'm sure of this. That he who began a good work, that's the author, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. <laughs> that's so good. That's why I ought to be able to maintain this idea and this focus in my life that looks to Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, so that I am always concerned and sure about His good work in my life, that He's going to complete it. And I, I know, and I know the end result is that the Holy Spirit is going to do a work in me that will honor and glorify Christ. Not only that, listen to Romans 8, 38. I, I thought about this verse as I was reading through that. Paul writes there, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. See, if He's the author and He's the finisher and we're to look to Him, nothing can separate us. But the problem is when we don't look to Him, what happens? We, we, get, we feel separation, even though it's not happening, right? So this just illustration pops in my mind. Students, y'all students like Riley, Ab Abigail, Claire, um, I'm trying to think who else. Juliana did this. Um, there's a couple other you guys. We, we went water skiing last weekend. It was a back-to-school bash. And we got, I got to take them down to my parents' lake house. And so I got to teach some of them or try to, to get them up on wakeboards and kneeboards and all that fun stuff. And uh, Leanne, you did it too. I didn't mention you. But some, some of you guys were out there, and one of the things that you were like struggling with is you were trying to get up on one of those, the wakeboard or kneeboard. I was like, what are you looking at? Right? Y'all remember that, right? And what I kept saying is, look to what? The back of the boat, right? Because if you're looking at the water or the ski, where typically we go where we look, especially in athletics, right? So if you're a runner, how many of you run in some kind of 5K, half marathon, several of you have, okay? When you're running, the last thing you want to do is look over your shoulder. If you're biking, the last thing you want to do is spend a lot of time looking over your shoulder because what do you do? You drift. When you're getting up on skis, you, you want to, or, or one of those things, you want to watch the back of the boat because that's where you eventually want to end up is where the boat was when you started to get pulled. Folks, if we want to have effective lives, confidently walking with the Lord, we look to Jesus. Now, here's the last thing I want to say about that. The verb there is really interesting. It's present tense. You say, what's the big deal about present tense in the Greek? It's just this. It means it's ongoing. It never stops. <laughs> mm. How many times in my life, in my day, do I stop looking to Jesus? That's my problem. <laughs> That's my problem. If I would just discipline myself, listen to the witnesses around me, be encouraged to keep my eyes looking at Jesus, how different would I be? How different would you be? Let us be people that look to Jesus, the author and finisher of the faith. Now, look at, let's look at this. This is the last part. So what we're looking at now is this idea of the motivation of Jesus. Now, I, I, I hope that this is like a rich capstone to this message because I think it's easy for us sometimes to look at Scripture 
and recognize a couple things about the heart of Jesus and some of those things. But I think this passage is one that's such a, a tremendous key that reveals not only the heart of Jesus, but even more so the motive that, that by which he operated. Now, you may say, why is motive such a big deal? Well, let me go back to an eighth grade definition that uh, Coach Eskridge gave all of us boys in his English class. We had to write this definition on every vocabulary test in eighth grade, which was a few weeks of school, okay? So you don't have to memorize this except for Juliana. Um, that's my daughter. Uh, you don't have to write this down. It's just the best definition in the, the face of the planet for the word motivation. Motivation is the stuff that permeates your entire being. Now, let me stop there for just a second and editorialize. What motivates Christ? This, this, this is what permeates His entire being. That's powerful. When we get there, think about everything that Christ did was motivated by these things that we're going to look at. So motivation is the stuff that permeates your entire being when you have a clear, vivid picture in your mind of what you want to do. And, now this is great, because I'm thinking about Jesus in this, and an intense, burning, all-consuming desire in your heart to fight for it. When you think about Jesus having an all-consuming desire in His heart to endure the cross, to suffer shame, for us. That is amazing. It is no small thing. And that's why we ought to look to Him and keep our eyes focused on Jesus. Because there was nothing that would hinder Him in His work of atoning for our salvation and becoming the propitiation for our sin, for enduring the shame and the guilt that should have been mine and yours. He endured the wrath of God being poured out upon him to satisfy that so that we, by grace through faith, would come to know salvation. It is not a small thing. And so when we think about his motivation, <coughs> excuse me, let us allow that to be another reason by which we cling so tightly to Him and look to Him so consistently, encompassing all that our soul and faith and trust entail. So let's look back at the text here because I want to make it clear out of this. For the second part of verse, verse 2, he said, the writer says, Who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of of the throne of God. It's interesting, this word that um, we, we, we have in the English translated, who for the joy, for, that, that word for, is not the typical Greek word, gar, that is, that is translated as for. It's actually the word anti or anti. <coughs> Excuse me, I got a tickle in my throat this morning. keeps attacking me. Um, it is the word anti, which actually has to do, like you can think Often we, when we think about something that's contrasting, it's the antithesis of something. It, it contrasts or stands in the opposite. It also has this idea of meaning in the stead of or over and against, okay? And I, I think for is a fine translation in the readability, but I think there's a little bit of something lost if we don't understand how it does emphasize the contrast so what is being contrasted here is the joy of Jesus and shame. D does that make sense? 
to you? Because if we don't understand the joy of Jesus, then we don't understand the contrast of the shame that he really endured. And here's where that plays like most specifically in my mind is this. What was the joy of, yeah, Jesse, that would be helpful. Thanks so much. Jesse, you're such a good servant. I need to watch what I'm doing to go before the speakers. Thank you so much. Y'all forgive me as I hopefully get rid of this. What, what was the motive for Jesus and ultimate, like, like enduring all these things for joy? Well, what would bring him the most joy is this, the glorification of God. Does that make sense? Rob, you mentioned it last week, Westminster Shorter Catechism, first question, right? What is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Guess what? I don't think that's any different for Jesus. If you go back and look at John chapter 17, it's the great high priestly prayer. One of the, the key things that he talks about in that prayer, praise in that prayer, is the importance of glorifying the Father, that in, in him the Father is glorified and, and that he would also glorify himself and that he would also have glory brought to him through the church, that we would bring glory to him as, he, as we honor him. It's an incredible passage, but glory is the key. Jesus enduring the suffering brought glory to the Father. Now, here's this, this may sound selfish for a second, but hang in here for a moment. Not selfish on my part, but selfish on Jesus' part. Jesus also brought glory to himself. Is that a bad or wrong thing? Absolutely not. Because who else deserves glory than Jesus? Well, you could say, well, God the Father. But remember, we're Trinitarian. Rightly, Trinitarian means they are one in being, one in essence. And so if Jesus is glorified, guess who else is glorified? The Father, our Heavenly Father is glorified, and also the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is glorified. So Jesus is longing for His glory to be made much of as well. And so through His obedience, through His will to uphold the process of salvation, He is glorified. And why is that so important? Because Jesus consists, remember this, it's simple but it's so complex, and if it's a mystery, a mystery to you today or seems mysterious, that's okay. Rest in mystery. God is mysterious, and it's okay. But remember, Jesus had two natures in one person. He had his divine nature and his human nature. And his human nature, he condescended and became a man and struggled in every way that we did. And so why does he want his divine side and nature and being to be glorified? Because in his incarnation, he humbled himself and he endured all this suffering and he bore the shame in the one person, Jesus. And so this is that moment for him to be also glorified. So it's this incredible thing for the joy before him. He was both glorified and endured the shame. How amazing is the work of Jesus? Listen to this. I'm going to read from Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12, and I just want to turn there. You, you may want to turn there too. Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12. This passage in Isaiah deals with the suffering servant. And this is just a powerful passage. And in this, I'm reading this to remind you that this plan, we know from Ephesians 1, that the plan of salvation was set out in the full, uh, before the time, in for the fullness of time, okay? So, so it's this clarity about the history and the work and the purpose and plan and the will of the Godhead for our salvation. Listen to this in Isaiah 53. Yet, 
It was the will, and if you'll notice, of the Lord, that, that word is all caps. It, it means the, uh, it's, it's the transliteration, or not transliteration, it's, it's the name that we uh, transcribe into, uh, sorry, I'm getting this backwards. That is the name Yahweh, or Yahweh, okay? The proper name of God that when we write it in English in the translations, we always capitalize it so we know that that's the proper name of God. There's something spectacular about that, the Jews would not even say that name. That's where we get the word Elohim, right? Or Adonai, I can't, I'm, I'm blowing it right now. But let's, let's just go back to the text. This is the plan of the will of God, okay? So let's, let's pick it up again. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. That's amazing. You, you think about Christ enduring the suffering that he endured on the cross. We, we would go, that is not worth it, right? But what does it say about him? It says that he will be satisfied by that. It's this aspect of he knew the purpose of God, and the only way that Jesus would be fully satisfied was once he was fully obedient and endured the cross. Amazing. Let's keep reading. Verse 11, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. You hear the, the language of the atonement and the propitiation made that we who were sinners would find righteousness through the work of Christ. And it says, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. What does that reveal to us about Jesus? His joy was enduring the cross. His joy was being obedient even to the point of death, giving his life up for you and I that we might respond to the message of grace in faith through trust Jesus as our Savior. What an amazing, amazing idea about the joy of Jesus. Now here's the, the beauty of this, and I want to go back to this idea, because I, I, I think this is part of the joy of Jesus. The work doesn't just end there. The work still goes on in this, that him being the author and perfecter of our faith means that in the church, as we collectively gather as a cloud of witnesses visible today, and individually we respond by grace through faith to him and salvation, he is perfecting each of us. And so part of his joy is to look at his bride who he is transforming, and look at us individually as we comprise his bride and to know that he is shaping us. That's part of his joy. How incredible is the joy of Jesus? Now, I want to give you a couple thoughts to, to think through as we conclude. I want to ask you some questions to reflect on for just a minute. How are you doing listening to the crowd of witnesses? That seems like an easy question to answer. But boy, oh boy, 
that could be really convicting. Because I think in modern church, it's easy to go, yeah, I'm going to do my churchly duty stuff on Sunday, and then I'm checking out through the week, and then I go back and just dip my toes back in on Sunday, and we're not really engaged. We're not in the Word of God, listening to the testimony of saints that have gone before us. And when I say that, I mean it's the witnesses who wrote the books. It's the witnesses who, uh, whose stories and narratives and, and accounts were gathered in the book. It's Paul talking about key people and their relationships with the Lord, how we celebrate them. It's us looking at historical figures and going, look at how they walked rightly with the Lord. We need to be encouraged by this great cloud of witnesses that surrounds us. How are you doing listening to them? How are you doing gathering their stories? How are you doing making sure that they have a lasting impact on you? We don't walk around in a, an isolated bubble. Paul Simon had an old song. What was it? I am a rock. I'm an island. Island, And a rock feels no pain and an island never cries. This is the biggest <laughs> lie. Because none of us are a rock. It's a great song. But none of us are a rock. None of us are an island. We all struggle. We all feel pain. But we're also able to go to Christ who satisfies our every longing. So how are you doing listening to the witness? Are you being encouraged? That's a great way to evaluate if you're listening well. Are you fulfilling your duty by mortifying your sins? That's an easy one to answer. Is sin habitually in your life? What was the last time that you said, you know what, that's a sin that I need to put to death. That's one that's been too long habitual for me. It needs to, I need to become disciplined and, and get rid of it. All of us have that need. Most importantly, are you looking to Jesus? Are you consistently looking to Jesus? Let that sink in for just a minute. Evaluate. Let the Holy Spirit direct you about that answer. Don't, don't try to justify. Don't, don't make cheap excuses. Y'all know my definition, what of an excuse is. It's the skin of the truth stuffed with a lie. We, we can all look and go, yeah, I'm looking to Jesus. It's easy to make that a skin of the truth. But when we get down into it, is it stuffed with lies where really we're not? Really, we're not. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, wow, I love your word. I love your spirit that it enlightens us to the truth of your word. More than that, Lord, I love Jesus. Lord, I pray that as we just reflect on these things that your word has brought out and the inspiration that the writer of Hebrews operated under to, to share these truths with us, Lord, that we would be people that do our due diligence to look at Jesus, that we wouldn't be satisfied with the things of this world, but Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the one who has done all these things for the joy that was set before him, Lord, his joy would be imitated in, in, in us because we are clean him tightly rather than sin. We're keeping our eyes focused on him. And Lord, this morning, as I've been praying over this sermon this week, and what I, it's been burdened as of late to, to think through this for our church and folks here, 
Lord, I dare say that there's somebody under the sound of my voice that does not know Jesus as their Savior. They may know a lot of truths and facts about Him, but they have not surrendered their life to Him, trusting in His work for their salvation. Lord, the Word just simply says this, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. It is not rocket science. It is not a hard thing. And Lord, if somebody's being burdened with, with that truth and that need to call out to Jesus for salvation, I pray today that they would reach out to someone, myself or someone else in, in this room to get counsel about that so they would be convinced and confirmed that they know Jesus as their Savior. Father, for the rest of us that may know you, Lord, help us. Help us to walk faithfully with you. Because when we do, Lord, there's encouragement. And as I mentioned earlier, Lord, there's hope. And that hope is made sure because of who we are in Christ. So, Father, this morning we celebrate your work in us and through us. And, Lord, where we fall short, we pray that you'd work in us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.